Welcome to the Naked Wellness Podcast. As a qualified nutritionist, I'm here to strip away the nonsense and get down to the bare essentials of nutrition and wellness. Join us as we debunk myths, chat with top-notch experts, and serve up practical tips that will leave you feeling empowered. Get ready to uncover the naked truth about living your healthiest life. Let's undress. Welcome back to the Naked Wellness Podcast. I am super excited because today I have a special guest with me. I have Jen Messina. Jen is a registered dietitian and a mum of two, and she works closely with her clients to help them unlearn diet culture and heal their relationship with food. She also works quite closely with her clients and helps them to raise kids to become body confident and intuitive eaters, which is super, super freaking cool. So welcome, Jen. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited to dive into some of the questions that I know you probably get and questions that I hear all the time um, and really like dig into some of the nuance and how we can actually make this practical. Like what can I do today to make a difference in my family? So I'm excited about that. Me too. Did you want to start off with giving us a little bit of an introduction about yourself, your journey that you've been on? Totally. So I am a registered dietitian in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I started very much um, in a diet centric mindset. So I was raised in the 90s and early 2000s. That's kind of where my youth was um, and very much inundated with diet culture messaging from a very young age. And like many dietitians developed my own sort of disordered relationship with food. Um, we would kind of call it orthorexia now or like obsession with being healthy um, in my early years and then thought, hey, I'm going to like share this message with everyone, um, not realizing quite how um, like how harmful it was, to be honest. And so I went through the dietetics um, program and here in, in BC, we have a very small program. There's only 30 dietitians in our province per year that are registered. So really small program and started noticing like a lot of like other kind of concerning things amongst my fellow dietitians, not only like no disordered relationship, but you know, some like definitely like potentially, you know, actual eating disorders in people. So I think like really when you're looking to, when you, when you love talking about food and you talk about food all the time, um, you know, it's on your mind all the time. And so I feel like for some of us, it gets to be our life and our obsession. And so um, I think it's really, you know, for listeners out there, if you are looking to work with a dietitian, making sure that you're finding the right fit, making sure the dietitian that you work with is um, helping you unlearn harmful beliefs and has more of an anti-diet um, approach to nutrition. Um, and I always like with everyone, I always say like, it's kind of like dating. Like when you find a dietitian, you want to make sure they're the right fit. Like there's going to be some people that aren't a good fit for you. Um, and so make sure you kind of, uh, reach out to those who are supportive. So, um, yeah, so I started my career very much in the diet centric paradigm. I worked in clinical practice for 10 years and then had my kids. Um, at that point I realized, I had a girl first and realized, wow, I really don't want her to have the relationship that I had growing up with food. And so really started diving into the work of some like influential dietitians like Christy Harrison and her podcast, Food Psych. And then of course, like Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich um, with intuitive eating and then started reading. The more you read, I feel like once you see like, you know, intuitive eating and health at every size, once you read the literature and you read the work, it's really hard to unsee. And so when I started in private practice, I actually started with covering for another dietitian who was on maternity leave in private practice. Um, and I actually had to tell her, you know what, like 
I don't think I'm a good fit for you because I can't practice weight loss counseling anymore. Um, not that as an anti-diet dietitian, I'm against weight loss. Like sometimes people's weight change when they do, when they make changes with their health behaviors. And so, you know, my focus just is never on weight. So as an intuitive eating dietitian, I focus on healing your relationship with food. And so that could look like weight may go up, may go down, may stay the same. Um, but you know, in her practice, I know that it was more weight centric. And so I really had to say like, I need to kind of go off in my own direction because I didn't feel ethical about providing weight loss counseling anymore. Um, and so that's, that pretty much started around like 2018, 2019. Um, and then I opened my own private practice right before the pandemic, um, which everything kind of like crashed, right. And burned for many of us. And having, I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at the time, um, and food was coping, right. Food was a coping strategy. And it was something that that shouldn't have been demonized, um, but it was. So I really saw the need to like show up on social media and be a voice of like support and reasoning um, that we don't have to feel ashamed of our coping strategies that we're using to get through the global pandemic. We shouldn't feel guilty about gaining weight during a global pandemic. Like, thank goodness we're still here. Um, and so that's when I really started kind of taking off on social media um, and from there, um, like I still do my one-to-one private practice. It's about half of what I do. And then the other half is more like online work. And so, um, I've run courses like raising body positive kids. Um, and I do like a lot of like media work and stuff like that to help support families to raise kids, to have a different relationship with food in their body that I had, um, to make sure that my kids and I have a boy and a girl now, um, so obviously boys are still affected by diet culture. They have different messaging, um, but to make sure that they are, you know, like the next generation of kids is having that support that they need. So I do a lot of work in like schools and with teachers and classrooms and like educational sessions like that to also kind of get that message across that, um, because I find that like diet culture shows up in all different areas. So just having it from, you know, like parents can have one view but if the teacher is teaching X, Y, and Z, like they also have a very emotional relationship over your child too. So I really find like, you know, looking at all the different aspects of, um, you know, support, like who is talking about this with their kids, who has the most influence um, and then, and working with different areas is going to have the most long lasting support for our kids. Mm, I love it. What a journey that you've been on. And I'm pretty sure the statistics are something like 40 to 60% of nutritionists and dietitians actually have disordered eating themselves. And it almost makes sense, right? Because it's exact same with me, like all the racy of just being obsessed with trying to be perfect with the food, because for years whilst you're studying, you are constantly just fed information after information. And a lot of the lecturers or the teachers will, will put foods in boxes so that's what you're consumed with and that's what you learn and so I think it's really powerful that coming out of that you're then able to find this new area of okay it doesn't have to be like this either and I went through quite a similar path of you then I went into um after university Weight Watchers so one of the world's largest weight loss companies and was working that had the same sort of moral dilemma I was like I just don't think I can continue to, to work in this field anymore because it's just so heartbreaking how much it would feed on women's insecurities and vulnerabilities and make them believe that their self-worth was the number on the scales and their body weight, shape and size. And that's about it. And it was just so awful to witness 
all of these amazing women coming in and putting all of that focus to only that and not seeing what health could be or them not being able to live their lives to their fullest potential because they were controlled by the number on the scales or by food. And so coming out of that and yeah, realizing that there's actually another way that you can have a relationship towards food, but also towards your body is so powerful. And you're right, once you start down that path, you're like, oh, I'm never going back to any of those like diets or fads or whatever it is ever again, because you've just been opened up to this new new world. And I know that so many people do have their hesitations about it, which also makes sense, right? Because we've literally been raised in a world where we are told that weight loss is you know the best thing and i saw so many so many people through weight watchers who they were now in their 70s and their parents had put them on a diet when they were like 15 16 years old as well so literally their whole life it's what they thought they had to be doing and so i just think yeah it's so powerful that there's so many more people coming out now as well helping people to unlearn all of these diet culture beliefs that we've created and then the work that you're doing on top of that to help the children now be raised in a completely different world and industry but it starts from the top down right like it's all good and well to to work with the kids but you have to go through the parents and the teachers and the schools and all of that because that's what they're being influenced by and children are like little sponges they will absorb everything and anything and so and i always like used to always talk about this with so many of of my clients in weight watchers as well of you have to think about it in the sense of you might tell your child one thing but if you're sitting down at the dinner table and they've got like regular pasta, bolognese sauce, delicious food, mum's sitting there with zoodles or zucchini noodles and a bit of tomato sauce, they're actually physically absorbing and watching what you're doing and internalizing that. Well, why do I have something different to mum? Like, I want what she's having type of thing. Maybe I should change it. And this is where, like, you know, actions speak so much louder than words as well. And so I think it'd be important for us to start to touch on like, what are the actual benefits of raising an intuitive eater? So I think like children are born intuitive eaters. So if you think of like an early baby, like an infant, they actually like eat when they're hungry, they stop when they're full. They like, they don't care if it's been one hour or four hours. Like they just, they listen to their body and it's so magnificent to see. And I think when you look at early children, like even like toddlers, you'll see it too. Like they'll take a bite of a cookie and they'll be like, I'm done. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, children are actually born intuitive eaters, but unfortunately in diet culture, we take that away from them. We say things like, no, you need to have three more bites. No, you can't have the, you know, cookie until you have your chicken. So well-meaning because a lot of us, like, I think the other thing is to reflect on how we were raised. Like a lot of us, I would say we're cycle breakers, like, like diet culture has been handed down intergenerational trauma around dieting for like decades and decades and decades, like our moms, our grandmas, our great grandmas, like everyone has had this messaging. So if you have said those things and you're like, Shit, I've said, oops, I don't know if I can swear, but if, 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 um, if you said, Oh my God, I've said like, you have to have your chicken before you have your cookie. Or I've said, you know, you need three more bites or, um, no, you're not allowed to have any more pasta. The only available things are, or the broccoli or the chicken. You know, if you said those things, like I just want you to know that like, it's not irreparable what what you might have done with your kids, right? And so I think we can go back and I'm a really big fan of repair and saying like, we can go back and say, you know, I 
said X, Y, and Z, and we're going to actually be moving forward and doing things differently. So the philosophy around intuitive eating um, is really based out of research done by Ellen Satter in the Division of Responsibility and Feeding. And so she is a family therapist and a dietitian. And so a lot of the stuff that I talk about is helping to support kids not to do anything differently, but to preserve their own internal cues around hunger and fullness. Like I work with kids, like I had a 12 year old the other day and he just said, I don't know when I'm full. I have no idea. And that's because he has been restricted his whole life um, because he's in a larger body and his, all of his family members are in smaller bodies. So um, he really, he had to like use external cues, like his mom saying like, you need to stop eating. So we're really working on like peeling back the layers and trying to relearn some of those things. But I think for many of us, like if we just started from the beginning and we let our kids like know that like it's normal for kids to eat one to two foods at a meal. So if you serve like a healthy balanced meal, like most of us do, if you're modeling eating that food yourself and eating the same food as your kids and your kid chooses to eat like say the blueberries only from the plate, that's all they eat for breakfast. And like in your mind, you're like, oh my goodness, they need to be eating like the, they need to have their waffle or they need to have their egg or whatever it is. But us like pushing that on them actually sends a message that those foods are not good because nobody's pushing a kid to like eat more, I don't know, cookies, right? Like that's not, so we don't need to tell kids to eat more sweet things. So when we try and force kids to eat a certain way, it also sends like a subliminal message that those foods aren't as good because why is my mom kind of encouraging me or kind of forcing me or bribing me in order to eat it? So um, the division of responsibility basically says, which is the philosophy that I work from. And it says that parents have certain roles and responsibilities. So the parent's job is what we call the what, when, and where of feeding. So you provide what's on the menu, you provide where, like, is it at the table? Is it on, you know, on the floor? Is it at a picnic? And then you provide the when, so you set the times and then kids decide from the foods provided, which foods they eat and how much. So a lot of the stuff that we see online is actually the opposite. Like children are saying, I want chicken nuggets for dinner. And parents are saying, sure, but you need to have four more bites of carrot before you get, you know, so the roles are backwards. So if we really want to help our kids, like learn to listen to their own bodies, we need to set some foundation and some, some boundaries around eating. So if they only eat the blueberries, but then they ask for a snack like 10 minutes later and they want goldfish. Well, the answer is no, the kitchen is closed, right? So I think we need to have some like foundational mm -hmm. stuff around setting some boundaries because what then I see is like, then the kid eats goldfish for like the next hour and then they're not hungry for lunch. And so then it's like, then they don't eat at lunch. They only eat two tablespoons of their lunch and then they're hungry in an hour, right? And then they're eating pretzels or whatever. So it's a lot of this like crunchy air. So nothing, no shade to like crunchy air. Like I love a good like pretzel or cracker. But I think if we want our kids to learn to eat more nutritious, like obviously eating those same foods ourselves, but also having some boundaries around the eating experience. So if anyone's kind of curious about this feeding philosophy, like I said, it's called the division of responsibility in feeding. She has an entire institute of, of resources. Um, and this is considered like the gold standard for feeding kids. Um, and so it really feeds into intuitive eating because intuitive eating is like, as many of us know, is like listening to what our body's asking for. So if our body only wants blueberries at, at breakfast, like we just gonna have blueberries for breakfast, right? But we don't allow that same for kids. Now, the biggest difference I would say between intuitive eating for children and adults is adults have unconditional permission to eat at any time. And children, we have more boundaries 
around mm-hmm. meal and snack time. Um, and the reason why is because kids don't have the part of the brain required for um, planning and organization and coordination. Like they don't have the the thought to be like, you know what, like I really should eat more at breakfast because if I don't, I know that I'm going to have a really long play date and I won't have a chance to eat. Like they don't have that planning sense. So parents need to offer food regularly. So what that looks like for younger kids is we need to offer food around every two to three hours and for older kids, about every three to four hours. So I know for my own kids, I'm still, they're six and eight. So I still feed them every two to three hours. So if breakfast is at seven, then nine, I offer them a snack. So again, like we're not talking about starving your kids. Um, obviously in intuitive eating for adults, you eat whenever you want, whenever, you know, your body is saying, but for kids, we're also trying to help them learn a schedule that's going to be more similar to the school schedule. Like kids can't also like eat at any time at school. So we need to try and set up a bit of a foundation around the when, um, but then again, letting them decide from the foods provider, which foods that they want to eat. And if that means it's only chicken for lunch, like it's only chicken for lunch, like, even though that's not balanced and putting quotation marks here. Mm, I think it's so interesting that you even touched on the nutritious side of still getting your kids to reach and want to eat the fruits, the veggies, the chicken, the things like that. But there's also nothing wrong with the pretzels and the goldfish. I think that this is such one of the biggest misconceptions and myths that I hear about intuitive eating is that people think that if you don't have rules in place, like food rules, that you're just going to eat everything and anything like all the donuts and all the cookies and all the chips and it's it's not the case like your body will like sure if you've had food rules for such a long period of time and you remove them yeah there might be a bigger desire to go for those foods to start with but as you remove those foods down off the pedestal you are naturally going to gravitate towards eating in a way that feels really good for your individual body and yeah it probably will still include having like all foods your chips your chocolates but it's also going to include having your fruits your veggies your nuts your seeds your grains like everything and so i love that you touched on that with like with kids as well like they're they can still dictate and make their decisions, but there are still those boundaries in place. And you still want to obviously give them the options to make choices that are nutrient dense as well, which is cool. Mm-hmm. And I think too, like kids also, like they really look at what you're eating. So I think like back to your point about like, if you're eating the zoodles, like they're, they're looking at that. So children actually learn more by what we do rather than what we say. So I think like a lot of parents will say to me, like, well, I don't want my kid to just eat like candy and cookies all day. Um, and I'll say, you know, I don't either. I don't also want them to eat that, but you know, so how, how do I get my kid and, you know, get is kind of, a, you know, not the best word, but how do I get them to eat more nutritious is like, we offer nutritious foods regularly. We eat them regularly. We talk about food in a neutral way. We don't use food as reward, right? We don't use like sweets or certain foods as reward for doing something good. We maybe you have a little garden and we read books about food and all that kind of stuff that helps with kids learning about food in a neutral way and, and putting all foods on, on the same playing field. So you know, I was just actually looking at my kids. They have a um, a school hot lunch program. And we actually had this big, um, you know, notice going out that the schools were going to have the option to like eliminate all the quote unquote junk food from the menus. And my school actually asked me, what did I think of that? Like, what did I think about like no longer offering like hot dogs or chips or ice cream on Fridays in the summer and like that sort of thing. Um, and so, cause I'm on the pack. So it was interesting is like, 
they were pretty shocked that I was like, I think we should keep that on there because to be honest, like, like food shouldn't only be about nutrients. Food should also be about fun. And the other thing is, I think we often underestimate that like school, like what we eat at school is also um, like, like I know teachers get worried about lunch boxes. Like they'll say, like, they'll say to me, like, well, his eating is processed food, but we're only seeing one snapshot of the meal. So I think we need to think about like, sometimes those are the safe foods for a child and they may have like a sensory disorder or a pediatric feeding disorder or autism or some other kind of thing, or maybe they just have anxiety. And so they just want to be eating their safe food. So my school is actually shocked. And I was like, I think we should leave all those things on the menu and let parents decide again from the menu parents decide a few foods that they want to serve their kids and like for some of my kids like I remember I had one child um, they had gluten intolerant or they have celiac disease so they couldn't eat gluten so she said if you took the chips away I literally would have no food to Mm -hmm. order for my child and they already feel left out enough having celiac disease so like she was so thankful that I had advocated to like let parents decide so again back to like parents decide what's on the menu for kids and kids that get to decide from those foods provided. So I might order my kids some things, they might choose to eat it or not. Um, No, I I know this is coming also from a place of privilege. Not every family has the opportunity to order their kids foods or decide maybe they're shopping from like a food, you know, from the food bank or something like that. So all they have is what they have. Um, But trying to give a little bit of variety within your budget, like whether that's like canned fruits or frozen, like all of that is also going to be just nutritious as well. So from what's in your budget, providing a little bit of variety is what's actually going to help them learn to listen to their body. And I think too, like we often, like I was saying in the beginning, like we might have as adults, we might choose like three or four different foods at a meal, but a child would choose one to two. And so they might only eat the chicken or they might only eat the pasta. And so like parents will say to me, well, like all they ate was like the blueberry. So what do I, how do I prevent them from only eating blueberries at the next meal? And I'll say, well, maybe don't serve blueberries at the next meal, right? Like if you don't want them to eat that food, then you don't serve it. Right. So, but again, like we want to be careful around like restrictions. So the other thing is like, I'll have parents say to me, like my kid is super obsessed with sugar. Um, And so one of our strategies is actually to offer it more often, because as we know with adults and intuitive eating, when we take away the specialness of certain things, it becomes less of a big deal. So you might see your kid, if you serve like a child-sized portion of dessert with dinner, you might notice them, they might eat at the beginning, they likely eat the dessert first, but you might notice over time that they go and have like a bite of the meat, a bite of the, you know, chickpeas or whatever it is that you're serving and then have a bite of the dessert. So it's pretty miraculous to see. I mean, we know the research in intuitive eating for adults. um, And so many of us are wanting to like help prevent harm earlier so that we don't have to like unlearn and then relearn it just like maintaining that like from birth that intuitive eating skill mm-hmm. 100% I remember and I mean love my mom to be it's bless her she was just trying to do what was what she thought was best in in the time but as children in every January we would be put on like a, a sugar ban because she thought that we had had too much sugar over the Christmas period and the holidays and things like that and like that, that month I swear sugar like was more appealing to the eye. It's all I wanted. You know, as soon as you have that hardcore, you can't have this at all. It was like me and my sisters were all about, okay, well, how do we get down to the milk bar? Like, how can we, how can we get, like, it just became this, this game almost of it's a forbidden fruit. So let's like push the boundaries to actually go and get it. Whereas 
the months where they, there wasn't a ban around it, it what there wasn't that same overwhelming desire to reach for it so it makes complete sense when you say that you start to offer it more and it changes the way that the kid might might see it and view it Mm -hmm, definitely and I know a lot of parents are often like inundated with messages online that like sugar is terrible for their kids Mm. and blah blah blah. but I think like what we really want to do is like, we can't shelter our kids from any food forever. So I think like, I'm trying to help kids have a healthy relationship with food. So when they're 13, they're not headed down to the local candy store and buying like bars and bars of chocolate and pixie sticks and Slurpees and that sort of thing. Like maybe they do sometimes, but it's not like they're not obsessed with it because eventually children will have their own money like they'll do their own thing. So we want to help them be calm around all foods. Like if we're really talking about health here, like health is being able to eat a cookie and not eat a box of cookies, right? It's like having an ice cream stopping halfway if you're full. Um, and that's like the goal I know for some adults, like they'll say to me like, that seems like impossible, right? But I think we eventually can get there. Like you'll eventually get to a place where you can have like a container of ice cream in your freezer and you're not like devouring the entire thing. Like, obviously we would go, if you were like fresh out of diet culture, we wouldn't like have all your fear foods at the house at one time. But I think like there is an opportunity like similar to like, we want to help raise kids so that they don't have this unhealthy relationship with food, because many of us realize like what that has done to us, like our obsessions with like clearing the plate or like, you know, having to, you know, feel like we need to eat and not let anyone know about it or certain things like that. Like those are all things that we've learned. Um, So I think we can, like a lot of us, like our parents were doing the best that they could, but now that, you know, as Maya Angelou says, like when we know better, we do better. So we can Mm -hmm. make changes in our, the way that we feed our kids so that they do have that different relationship with food. And I would argue that like we, you know, sugar isn't the devil. Sugar isn't the enemy. What is, is restriction and, and deprivation uh, because that often leads to kids being obsessed. Like I had one kid come over and we were baking and it was one of my daughter's friends. And I saw her grabbing chocolate chips and stuffing them into her jacket pocket at the front door. And it just made me so sad because it reminded me that like, here, my kids were like happily, like they might eat a couple here and there, but they weren't like overly obsessed with it. But she was like grabbing like handfuls and stuffing them in because probably she didn't know when the next time she would get chocolate was right. So mm. it was a huge deal to be making these cookies. Um, so we want to help kids feel calm around all foods and how we do that is like, again, like we were saying, like neutralizing all foods and having talking about them in a neutral way. Like I even don't like using the word treat. Like I'll just call a food by its name, chocolate chip. Right. Um, you know, again, it's like, how are we using food as reward? Are we using reward? Like every time they do a certain behavior, they get a candy, right? Then again, that's like using it as reward. Now, I mean, there's going to be times when all of us like give our kids, like say it's like the end of like a baseball game and they hand out freezies or whatever, right? Like there's always going to be food and in celebration. And I think that's totally fine, but it's just, we want to have like other things as well as rewards, not just food. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then how would you go about, because obviously you just mentioned that you call foods just by its name, right? Obviously in schools, you've learned that there's your sometimes food and then there's the food that you have every day. And how do you go about then the nutrients in your vegetables and your fruits and explaining that sort of stuff? And when you do learn in school that you've got your sometimes food versus the food, the everyday food. 
I mean, it really depends on the age. I think, to be honest, kids are really black and white thinkers until about like at least 10, 12. So anyone under that age, um, we really don't need to be talking about nutrients at all. Like if you don't, if like, we don't even need to be calling foods sometimes foods and everyday foods or red foods and green foods. Like, again, I like to just say, like, if my kid were to say like, well, why can't I, like, they might say like, why can't I have ice cream for breakfast? Right. And so like, you know, the old thinking would be to say, well, that's a junk food. I'm not letting you have junk food for breakfast. You need to have something healthy before you go to school. How I would reframe that is I would say, well, that's not on the menu. I love ice cream too, but we have waffles, we have cereal, we have oatmeal. Like these are the choices for today. Uh, maybe we can add ice cream for your after school snack. Like, how does that sound? So it's just reframing like how we talk about food. Um, and then again, with like the nutritional value, again, I would say like, you don't need to teach kids that like candy and ice cream are sometimes foods because you just serve them rare, more rarely than mm. you serve fruits and vegetables. And it will be naturally perceived as like, this isn't a food that we eat all the time. Um, but I often get like, I have really inquisitive kids, but why, but why? And it's like, I really like to say, because we need a lot of different foods to give our body what it needs to grow. And so if we only eat chocolate, we're not going to grow in the way that we need to. If we only eat broccoli, we're also not going to grow in the way that we need to. So we need a little bit of balance in all the different foods. So um, I think that really like resonates with them. Like we can't live off one food. Like we can't only have candy all the time because we're not going to grow and have the energy. I mean, sometimes I'll use a phrase, like I'll have, like, if they're kind of pushing me around, like, like, you know, say they're going to like soccer and they want to have candy for their before soccer snack. And I'll say, well, we need something to last in our body a little bit longer. So what about we choose something with a little bit more protein in it? So we might have some peanut butter or we might have some cheese and maybe we'll have a piece of candy and we'll have a little bit of, you know, some crackers. And, you know, we need a couple of things that are going to last in our body because, you know, things like candy don't last a long time. They last a short time. So um, that helps kids kind of visualize like, oh, I need something to like last me a little bit longer in my body. But in, in general, I try not to like label foods too much um, because I just don't see the need to. And like I was going back to the black and white thinking, like if we call foods like junk food or bad, it's very confusing because it's like, if candy is bad, why do I get it sometimes? Why does my mom give it to me? Or if this is junk food and I like the junk food and I'm putting junk in quotations, does that make me a bad person because I like it? So they really associate like those labels with themselves. So maybe I shouldn't, I like junk food and mom says I can't have it. So maybe I'll just eat it in secret, right? Which is what we don't want. So I think we just need to, as much as we can, again, like if you have been calling foods by their names, you can just say to your kids that they're older, um, you know, I've been calling like X, Y, and Z this. From now on, I'm just going to try and really like just call food by its name and really try and be more neutral about food. Make sure you, if I make a mistake, you catch me, catch mommy and like tell me that I've kind of, I've said the wrong thing. And kids like that. Kids really like when we can say that we've maybe learned new things and we're trying something new. Um, if they're younger, I would just go ahead and stop calling them junk food. I would just start calling them by their name. Like, sorry, chocolate's not on the menu for breakfast today. Like, I know that sounds really good. Why don't I put a piece in your lunchbox for daycare or something like that? Mm, I love that. I think that's so powerful. And so I know that you mentioned that obviously it's ideal to start to, to put all of these things in practice whilst the kids are quite young so that it's preventative. 
what happens if it, it, that hasn't been the case? Are there okay. any signs that parents should be looking out for that might indicate that their child does have disordered eating behaviours or patterns are starting to play out? They're starting to overthink food choices and how can they start to actually address some of those concerns that they might have? So, I mean, a couple of things come up. I've worked with a lot of kids in like, they're basically like, prior to their diagnosis of an eating disorder. So there's subclinical eating disorders. So I would say like a major red flag would be, mom, I want to get healthy. Mom, I just want to get healthy. I just want to lose a little weight. So what I would encourage you to do is like, do not agree with them that they need to lose weight. Um, do not tell them to go to the gym more often. Like, cause you're basically reinforcing the notion that there's something wrong with their body. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think like if a child is all of a sudden cutting out food groups or like not eating the foods that their friends are eating, um, or if they're being more obsessive, reading labels and things like that, those are like some major red flags. Kids should be able to eat a variety of foods. They should be able to go to a birthday party, go to the food court and be eating food without guilt or shame. If you're noticing that they're saying they need to like work off what they've done, um, with a run or they're using, they're exercising in their room at night or other unusual things. Um, those are definitely red flags. And I would highly recommend like reaching out to a dietitian who has like experience in pediatric eating disorders, um, because you really want to like nip that in the butt, like as early as possible. So we know that like the earlier the intervention is in terms of supporting families, the better the outcome is and the less likely it progresses into like an eating disorder. So those would be some things I would be looking out for. Like if my kid comes home and is like, I just want to be a vegetarian, um, like, but they're not willing to replace. That's the other thing I sometimes hear is like, they want to become a vegan or a vegetarian, but they're not willing to like replace with, like, if you're not eating meat, that's totally fine. If that's your ethical beliefs, but like, they need to also be like eating adequate amounts of like soy and tofu and edamame and beans and lentils and things like that. So if they're just trying to like only eat salads and things like that, like that's not adequate for their growth. So we know that adolescence is the second most rapid time of growth after infancy. So like the other kind of red flag would be if you're noticing that they're not following their growth curve. So we have pediatric growth curves that go up to age 18. So if your kid is trending around like the 75th percentile for most of their life, and then you go in for your well check visit or your doctor's visit, and they've fallen off their curve, and now they're at like the 60th or the 50th, like that's also a sign for concern if they're not following their, their trajectory. So um, those would be some of my kind of top red flags around that. Hmm. Okay. And so obviously there's a few to look out for. We only have control over what happens under the roof at home. Obviously, as soon as you're outside of that, you don't have control over social media is a huge one now. Friends and social influences from friends, teachers, schools. How do you navigate your way through what the child is obviously being influenced about body image and also food choices and especially from online and the information that they're getting there? Yeah. And so I think like, we really need to, like, I would love to say like, we could just put a bubble around our kids and like protect them from all diet culture, wherever it is. But really we need to raise children that are resilient to the messages that they receive. So we need to create what we call cognitive dissonance. So it's like this moment of like pause or hesitation when they see something. So like, for example, I've even started doing it like with my young kids, like we'll look at like they might see an advertisement somewhere. And my question then would be like, what are they trying to sell you? 
right? And so it's just getting them thinking about it. Oh, what are they trying to sell you in that? Oh, they're trying to sell you skincare. Like, oh, isn't that curious? Like, why do you think, you know, they're doing that? And like, what does the image look like? So we can start with this like early resilience training by helping to teach them like a message of who profits off you disliking your body. I often like to like use it as more of like a social justice lens, like similar to, um, you know, how we've seen like other movements. Um, You know, we often will look at like, if a child comes to you and they're saying like, oh, I really need to like, I I don't have a six pack. Like I really need to like go to the gym because like, you know, like all my you know favorite influencers are all doing this and that. So we'll start talking about like that influencer and maybe like who profits off her make, like, where is she making money off of this? Oh, mm-hmm. she's selling like a gym workout. Oh, she's selling like a supplement program. She's selling shakes. So who profits off body dissatisfaction? So I find that really powerful with young kids, not young, like young adults, like mm-hmm. teenagers. Um, to start talking about like the beauty industry and how it's like a billion dollar industry. And so a lot of times, even in my school talks, like when I go in and talk to like teenagers, like the first thing we do is we talk about puberty and normalizing like rapid body change. Um, like we were talking about, it's the second most rapid time of growth. So weight can change like 15, 20 pounds in a year. And this is going from a child who previously was gaining five pounds in a year. And now all of a sudden they gain 20 pounds. So they're like, all of a sudden like, oh my goodness, like what's happening to my body. And then we can also, so we can normalize it. Like actually that's supposed to happen. Like your body fat percentage needs to double in order for you to get a menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. You're gaining weight in your abdomen because that's what's normal for girls before it's redistributed to their breast and their hips. So these are things that many of us that did not hear, right? Growing up, we did not hear it was normal. We just heard we were eating too much and we were getting fat, right? As kids, um, we need to watch it because, you know, we're gaining weight. So I even had that experience like at a doctor's office and it stuck with me, right? Like being in puberty, early puberty and gaining weight rapidly and being told I need to eat less Christmas cookies, right? So like that kind of stuff like really stays with you. So we can help build the resilience by normalizing the changes in puberty. We can talk about body dissatisfaction, who profits off that belief. And then we can talk about like normal diversity in nature. I think that's the other thing is like really highlighting, like we are not all meant to be like this size. We're all meant to be like different, similar to trees or dogs or flowers. Like there's all different shapes and sizes and colors and skin textures and hair types and all of that. So um, I think we can help build that resilience and help kids realize that somebody makes money off them not liking their skin or their hair or their waist size or whatever. Um, And the more we can do that, the more that we can bring this cognitive dissonance, this like, ah, that doesn't seem right. Like that pause to be like, hmm, that message is different than the message that I hear at home. So we can't change the message that they hear. But if our home is like a body positive home and we're, you know, we have diverse art in our house and different books and media, and we call out fat phobia when we see it on the TV, like they'll notice when it's happening in the community and have more resilience to that messaging. Mm, And so, so much of it comes down to changing the conversations and the way that we talk and the way that we point things out, talk about ourselves, talk about, like, it just comes back to the conversations that we're having, right? And just getting everyone curious about why. Why is this there? Why is this on the social media? Why is this on the ad? What, like, what is the end game that they're trying to play with this? 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like it's the conversations that we're having at home. Like, mm-hmm. are we talking about our body in a negative way? Like, are we saying that we can't wear a swimsuit because we're too fat? Are we having the zoodles for dinner? Are we talking about the, the, you know, news person and how they've gained weight? Like, what are we talking about at home? So I kind of like, like to say one of the first steps for families is like thinking about like, can we think about our own immediate environment and try to make it um, a body talk free zone? So we don't talk about bodies unless we're talking about function. Like we don't talk about someone gaining weight, losing weight, having cellulite, having pimples, whatever, like it's just not part of the conversation that we have at home. Um, and then, and not talk about our own bodies negatively, because we know that that has an impact on kids. The other thing, which is a lot harder, which is a kind of a second step. So can we not talk negatively, but the second step is, can we talk positively about our bodies? If we're talking about body image. So children internalize the messages that we say about our bodies become the inner dialogue for our kids about their own bodies. Mm-hmm. So like, can we talk about, I love how I can still lift you up. I love how strong my legs are. Isn't it fantastic that, you know, I have that scar on my belly because that's where you came out of. Like, can we talk positively about our bodies? I know this is a lot harder for women because we are often told like not to talk positively about ourselves because we don't want to be gloating or, you know, whatever it is, but you know, kids need to hear us say, like my son said to me, like, mommy, your bum is a lot bigger than mine. And like, instead of me reacting, like, oh my God, like, I know I need to get back on, you know, Weight Watchers or I need to get exercising. I said, yeah, it's so awesome because when I sit down, it's nice and comfy. Right. And so my bum's bigger because mommy's body has changed after she had kids. Right. And so we'll talk about how my bum looks like a cantaloupe and theirs are like peaches and maybe one day there'll be a cantaloupe or maybe a pumpkin. So I think we can talk positively. We can take those opportunities for when kids notice differences too, and not because they're not saying it in a negative way. Mm. You know, they're not, they don't mean it in a negative way. Even if they said like your belly is so fat, like I would say, yeah. And it grew two humans in it. Like, isn't that amazing? Like, so I think we can reframe how we talk about our bodies at home And that again, like gives children that all builds this resilience to the messages that like their, their stomach should look a certain way in order to be good. Yeah. I love that. I think that is so powerful and it's literally changing the path forwards for so many. Now I do have some quick fire questions for you. Are you ready for these? What is one thing that you must do every morning to set your day up? Um, I mean, I have to have a shower. Like if I don't, I'm just like, I feel like I'm so tired still. And definitely like I have one coffee a day and it has to be like a latte and it has to be like piping hot. And so I think I to have that in peace too. Like try not to have like I drink it when it's hot, which I think is a challenge for many of us, but those are two things that are like definitely on my, in my like routine. I love it. What is one thing everyone can do every day to improve their life? I think taking some time to just be and relax and breathe. I think so many of us are taught this like hustle culture of like, we always need to be doing, achieving, moving things forward. But like, what happens if we just took a few minutes of like deep breath to just be in our bodies and listen to like what our body is telling us? I think we would get a lot of information from that. Mm, Absolutely. What is your favorite quote and why? Um. I have this like one that's stuck in my head. It's this too shall pass. 
Mm. Now I see it in a different light um, because my kids are getting older and I'm like, oh no, like things are going to pass. But also like when things are really hard, I really like hang on to that, that like, this is a fleeting moment in time and like things are going to be different tomorrow. So like, I love that. I think a hundred percent, like every storm will pass as well. Now, one question that I love to ask all my podcast guests is in the distant future, when you are looking back at your life, what do you think will be one of your biggest achievements or something that you'll be most proud of? And this could be something that you've actually already achieved, or it could also be something that you're hoping to do in the future. I think my biggest achievement would be for my own kids to not diet. Like, I think that would be like, if if I have kids that like are resilient to the messages that are like stronger today than ever before, I would say, um, I would be, that would be my greatest achievement, I would say. Yeah. I love that. I think that's so powerful. And even the fact that you are now helping so many other incredible moms get to change the path forwards for their kids. And it's one thing that I always say to my clients is when they start and they like, I want to do this for me, but I want to do it for my children. I always remind them of how powerful it is that they're actually at that point where they are so self-aware that they not only want something different for themselves, but they are willing to put the work in because it's not easy work. Like it is hard work to literally untrain the way that your brain has been thinking its entire life, but they're willing to put that work in to actually change the path forwards for their kids, which is just incredible. Mm -hmm. And I think so many of us, like that is our motivation Um, and, but I do have like a lot of people still on social media and they may not have kids. And so I think like, we also like this work is also healing our inner child. Right. Mm -hmm. So like learning about all of this, like whatever I've talked about, if if you don't have kids, like it doesn't even matter because it's like, what would life have been like if you were told that your body wasn't a problem to be fixed. Right. So I think reflecting on that, we can also work to healing our own inner child around some of those deep seated wounds like reflecting on maybe where some stuff has come from. I don't think like we can't change the past, but like maybe understanding a bit more and then like doing our own healing work as well. I think it it can be really powerful. Yeah, I agree. Did you want to tell the audience if you have anything coming up that's exciting for them and where the listeners can go to find you? So, I mean, I think that the best place to find me be on Instagram. I'm just Jen, the dietitian. I would say that the best place to get some free downloads, I have a bunch of free resources on my website, which is just jenmessina.com. I have like a free body positive poster, which I have in my own kid's room. Um, I have like a book list. I have teachers, handouts and guides. So that would be where I would send you if you want to like start to do a little bit more work there. Um, And I also have um, a list for back to school. Like if you want some like easy ideas for lunch boxes and things like that, um, some options as well, like all on the web. So check that out on your free resources. Amazing. And I'll put all the links in the show notes for easy access for everybody. But thank you so much, Jen, for coming on and sharing everything that you have with us today. It's been such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. Have a great day. What an incredible episode today with Jen. I think it is so powerful to have these open conversations to just start to talk about how we can change the path forwards, how we can create intuitive eaters and how us ourselves, as Jen mentioned at the end, heal our own inner child from histories that we have been through as well. So I would love to hear from you, your key takeaway from today's episode. Just head over to my Instagram, which is KJ Wellness with three S's and send me a message because as always, I love connecting with every single one of you. And I hope you enjoy the 
the rest of the day or the night whenever you're listening to this and i will chat with you in the next episode very soon until then you take care bye